With every adversity that we face, it's in those periods of very high stress that you learn to be more adaptive. Some some of the most useful elements that we've developed over time operationally, as well as from a budgetary standpoint, have come out of periods of extreme stress. Hey, welcome to My Company Story. I'm your host, Don Burge. My Company Story is a podcast where I get to interview some of the most interesting business owners and CEOs about the challenges that they've faced and how they've overcome them. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm here today with Sean Whelan. Sean is the co-founder of Flexogenics, and Flexogenics is in the healthcare industry. Uh, it's March 31st, 2020, and we've been a month into our pandemic, and, and uh, Sean is going to talk a little bit about his company, uh, in the healthcare industry, how he's dealing with this as a leader. And, uh, but first we'll have Sean tell a little bit about what uh, Flexogenics is all about, how it started and, and uh, give us an idea of the company. Thanks Don. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, um, I, I'm one of the co-founders of Flexogenics. We are a uh, non-surgical uh, clinical approach to the management of osteoarthritis. We help patients avoid uh, joint replacement and, and receive conservative management of uh, their orthopedic conditions. Um, we formed the company back in 2013, and it really was out of a uh, recognition of a lack of uh, a real diligent, um, wholehearted approach to this form or this area of medicine for orthopedic patients. Uh, typically in a, in a usual orthopedic clinic, um, or uh, orthopedic physician's office. Um, the orthopedist would much rather be in the operating room and uh, that's where they sort of flourish and that's where their training uh, prepares them to be at most times. Um, but for the patient who either cannot have surgery or doesn't want surgery, there, are, um, uh, there is a growing area of options that um, has been steadily developing over the past few decades. And um, there, there, there comes a challenge for that physician to split their time between doing what they're trained and love to do um, versus some of these things that are maybe a little different for them and not quite in their wheelhouse. Um, so as a result, it, it sort of ends up as being a cast-off type of service that doesn't get a lot of attention in their clinic. Uh, usually there's a, a pain management or a physiatrist physician in clinic who ends up absorbing all of these um, cases. Um, we, we would also we call them sort of the whipping boy of the clinic because they're, they're not really part of the, the team of orthopedists per se, and they're doing the things that the orthopedists don't really want to spend a lot of time on. Um, this, of course, is a generalization. It's not the case for, for all clinics, but it is very common. Um, but it really does sort of put a, shine a, spy, a spotlight on the way in which this form of medicine is handled. So by approaching this um, from this perspective um, and trying to be unique in how we develop the model, um, there's, a, there's a book, I know we've talked about it before, Blue Ocean Strategy, where that strategy in a nutshell is basically um, throwing, throwing away long-held uh, axioms about how something should or shouldn't be done. And that's how you come up with these unique um, iterations like Cirque du Soleil, for instance. You know, it's not a, not a circus and it's not a night, night show. It's a little bit of both. Right. So in a sense, we, we did that without really knowing. We, we uh, decided to be very brand centric, um, very recognizable, have a very um, high visibility from that standpoint, because we chose to market directly to our patients 
And in medicine, most of us are taught or told that that's sort of a no-no. It's something that for, for whatever reason, as physicians, we're, we're trained uh, to, look at, to look down on that. And I think that's changing as well. So that's how you've broken the mold, though, of, what the, of, of what's normally happening out there, is that uh, you are, your firm, uh, your clinic is going directly to patients then on, uh, and providing them kind of an, uh, an outpatient for orthopedic surgery, to, 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 which the surgeon isn't an expert in doing, and you guys are the experts, so you're taking that over and, and, and helping patients in that fashion. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go as far as to say they're not necessarily an expert. I think it's just something they would rather not spend their time doing. Um, I'm sure that they're more than capable, uh, but they would prefer to do other things, you know, in, in any operating room, especially. So it did allow us to become experts in this. We did much higher volumes. You know, a typical orthopedic office may only do uh, a dozen to two dozen uh, of these types of injections in a week, for instance. We will probably do three to four dozen in a day. So give us an idea, if you can, of, of what we would see. Is there a, is actually a storefront, a clinic that's something that a patient walks into and you take care of that patient in your, in your location? Instead of that patient going to his doctor's office, they go to you and your location. Is that correct? Yeah. So if you go from the very beginning of the chain, you know, we would be running some sort of advertisement. It could be a television commercial, it could be a radio broadcast, it could be a digital marketing, which is usually more typical nowadays, social media. The patient then will call us, uh, just like they would call a normal physician's office, and then we would go through a screening process to obtain some medical information from them, their, their history, to, to make sure they're an appropriate type of patient for our care. And then we'll schedule them for you know, their initial consultation. And then when they come in to see us for their appointment, um, usually our office is a little bit different than what they might have uh, experienced in a typical medical office, and that's on purpose. We try to make it a little bit different than what they might expect, um, a little bit more pleasant, a little less, um, uh, so some, somewhat less of the negative aspects of, of that clinic experience that they may have already had. And then um, when we uh, consult with them, we'll obtain more information, maybe perform some imaging um, if it's required, and then go ahead with the uh, initiation of the treatment that's prescribed. And that will be done there. Now, Sean, tell us a little bit about how did you happen to get into this industry? I mean, how, what was your background before 2013 and your co-founders? What brought you to where you are today? Um, interestingly, we all had uh, our foot in uh, radiology. So my original um, other partner and myself were both uh, diagnostic radiologists by training. And um, we did have some experience in interventional radiology, which exposes us to um, some of the image-guided uh, technique that we employ in our clinics for injections, primarily. Um, and then my, my other partner, has, she has a background as an RPA, which is basically the equivalent of a physician's assistant in radiology. Um, that, that was sort of the, uh, the commonality that we shared, but it was, it was our... I guess our entrepreneurial um, sense of adventure at the time that encouraged us to be creative and sort of look at what could we do. We saw a lot of people doing it wrong, I guess. There were a lot of um, primarily chiropractors and, and I, don't, I don't have any sort of you know, bad ill will towards chiropractors. I think that there's a necessary role for a chiropractor in the healthcare delivery system, but um, they also have a tendency to step outside of that lane quite a bit. And it's, it is primarily their very strong entrepreneurial 
and uh, business-minded spirit that does that for them. You know, they're always looking for sort of the next thing that's going to be the, the hottest new um, treatment or options uh, that they can offer. Um, and I think that seeing that happen and seeing that being done very haphazardly and inefficiently and, and in my opinion, not medically in a sound way, uh, it really encouraged us to, to seek out a better model that could kind of take some pages from their playbook, but also um, adhere to a stricter medical model that I felt was more appropriate for patient care. Right. That's perfect. So Sean, tell us then a little bit since 2013, I mean, some of those challenges that you have faced along the way, and I know there've been many, uh, this uh, COVID-19 and how that has now presented its whole unique challenge to your working environment. Yeah, I think as a business owner, you know, you're, especially when you have a smaller business, you are constantly learning um, as you go. I mean, that's, there's no better school than doing it and sort of falling and getting up and, and learning the lessons the hard way. Um, th those can be catastrophic as well. So um, I think along the way, you know, we've had several um, experiences where, you know, I think we, we may not have known how close to the fire we were um, until we kind of looked back and, and realized it. Um, I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything because I think that we've learned a lot as we've gone because of that. Um, and some of the struggles we've faced as a growing company, wanting to um, establish our presence, wanting to be the leader in the space, um, maybe moving a little too quickly. Um, we, 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 had to, we had that counterbalanced against trying to get appropriate funding to fuel that growth. We, went, we doubled in our, our revenue and our size every year for the first three or four years. And um, that's really meteoric growth, you know, when you look back at that. And it's probably not something that people should really seek out unless they're prepared for it. Um, as a result, being a brand new company, having a very young balance sheet and a very unpredictable uh, growth curve, we, had, we struggled to find appropriate financing. Um, and we couldn't capitalize that growth um, the way we really needed to. Um, as a result, we had to shift um, our, uh, our capital sources to harder and harder money. And that obviously is not a very safe pathway to be on. We, were, we always did it with the concept that we would be able to uh, come in with a larger credit facility that was more appropriate and sort of, you know, wipe out all of that um, harder short-term debt and position us the, more, the better way for what we needed to do. But unfortunately, that never materialized. Hmm. Um, so as we, um, the, other, the other lesson we were learning in the background was um, you can't have one store uh, not holding its own and being ballasted by the other stores that are, you know, earning a profit. I mean, you can, but that's really not the right way to do it. Right. Either. Each store needs to hold up on its own, on its own feet and for this model to work that way. I think so. And I think, yeah. I think everyone, you know, whatever model they're in, it's probably more appropriate. I think it's a, it's a bad habit to sort of get into to say, well, we're doing so well over here that we can tolerate losses on this one for any given period of time. Yeah, good Here's, point. We had two clinics that were in markets that weren't in that Goldilocks zone, uh, Los Angeles and Atlanta. They were very expensive markets, very um, large markets, and they posed challenges. So it, it seems that um, 
uh, yeah, you've, you, you've learned the lesson the hard way, really, by opening a clinic in Los Angeles and Atlanta, finding out those weren't maybe not economically uh, viable, finding states like uh, North Carolina and Oklahoma where they do work like that, and then pivoting and moving to, to working out of those locations is, is what it sounds like the lesson learned along the way. Yes. At the end of the day, you know, that's where we find ourselves. And I think um, it's definitely a more suitable um, model that we're you know, able to sustain at this point. And then with every adversity that we face, you know, I think it's in those periods of very high stress that you learn to be more adaptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some of, the, some of the most useful elements that we've developed over time operationally, as well as from a budgetary standpoint, have come out of periods of extreme stress. This period is different. Yeah, let's talk about that right now then, Sean. I mean, this period is extremely stressful that we're in right now. Businesses virtually come to a standstill, the health crisis that's going on. I mean, you're in the health industry. How has being in that industry impacted what's going on around the world today with you? So what I've been um, commonly telling people in our lives about you know this question is that we'll, we'll be the last to be negative impact negatively impacted and we'll also be the first to recover because we're in healthcare. You know, we're not a hotel chain, we're not an airline, um, and thankful or a restaurant or, or a bar. Thankfully, you know, that we are lucky because of that. I've got a friend who is in HR for a, a major hotel chain and they laid off 90% of their employees and shut down their operations at least temporarily. And that's a big deal. Um, Nonetheless, we're not unscathed, and I think because we're in healthcare, we also have this unique layer of duty uh, that we have to be aware of to our to our patients. You know, first do no harm, and and really we owe them uh, to take care of them. That means that we need to have a safe environment. It means we have to really consider what is essential and what is not essential. Um, you know, it's it's a tricky question because um, someone could argue very easily that uh, providing uh, elective pain management is not an essential service and we shouldn't um, risk uh, the well-being of our patients and our staff uh, in terms of potential exposure to this virus uh, to have such a non-elect or such an elective service performed. However, I can easily take the other side of that uh, argument and say, well, um, by doing so, we're keeping these patients out of urgent cares, emergency rooms, and primary care physician offices that should otherwise be much more focused on uh, saving their resources for uh, so many patients that do need the, the care that is so scarce now because of the high, narrow peak of these patients that are being seen all at once. And the, the reality is that's what patients will do if they can't get care that they're accustomed to or want at that moment, they'll resort to a more emergent um, setting to receive some sort of attention for whatever service they want. So what have you found then now in the last couple of weeks with your clinics in uh, Oklahoma and North Carolina, what have you found as far as the patients coming in? Are they, are they, are there fewer coming in? Are they, are they needing you? Are they staying away from you or what, what's happening in the world right now with, with that? So there's a really um, useful University of Washington uh, health epidemiology metric tool out there. I, I can send you a link for it afterwards, but it is basically, it, it predicts the peak of the curve for every different state, and it also predicts the capacity to treat the number of patients that are projected. Um, and when you look at those, it's really interesting, um, and it, it puts numbers and data to this phenomenon that we're seeing, which is every state is somewhere different in that curve. 
Uh, obviously, New York is right in the thick of things right now, but states like you hear in these uh, administration uh, briefings uh, that there's no cases or virtually no cases in places like Idaho, South Dakota, Nebraska, for instance. And that's just not the case. They are exactly where New York was a month or a month and a half ago. And the reality is that everyone is on this curve, but we're just somewhere different along the curve. Um, so Oklahoma is much earlier in their trajectory than North Carolina. We expect North Carolina to peak somewhere around the 12th of April, whereas Oklahoma may not happen until even the middle of May. Um, so that has, that has a, de a definite impact on patient perception of the problem. And that's sort of the crux of the issue that you know, we're experiencing globally with this. It's the calm before the storm. I tell um, uh, non-medical people that you know, if you ever saw a video of people before a tsunami, like in Indonesia, uh, when the water recedes and all the people are sort of um, mesmerized and wandering on, on the beach that they haven't seen without all the water on it. Um, they don't realize there are only maybe minutes left before they'll be running for their life. And that's exactly, I think, the metaphor for this virus. It feels very normal. In fact, we were in Spain for a CME conference um, only maybe a week or two before everything broke loose in Spain. And I can tell you, it didn't feel like anything was going on. You had this sense that, well, Italy's having problems right now, but it doesn't seem to be here. By the time we got off the plane in LLA, uh, within two days, everything was exploding out of control. And I don't have to tell you what it looks like now. I think that that's, we, for some reason, we don't learn from that. We're seeing that happen on a country by country basis and now a state by state basis and it still lulls us into that false sense of security. So coming back to our patient population, um, in Oklahoma, I've got patients who don't understand what all the fuss is about. Mm. Uh, I've got patients in North Carolina, some of whom feel that way, some of whom don't. This is also politically um, affected as well. You know, Depending on where you fall on the political spectrum, you may uh, choose to look at this situation one way or another. And for better or for worse, that shapes your opinion um, about what you should be doing, what advice you should be, you should be taking, um, how much of your normal life you should be carrying on with or not. So we have, to, we have to be cognizant of all of that. We have to be responsible to our staff and to our patients. And it's really a very complicated picture and a complicated situation to address. And it changes by the day. It so, really... Yeah, it really does. It seems very complicated. And, and I have to ask you, Sean, as a leader of your, uh, of your company, of your organization, how do you make the decision to stay open, to, to limit exposure, to, to provide a relief valve so that these people are not going to the emergency rooms, they're going to you instead? And then how do you keep your people safe and how do you keep your patients safe? So there are a lot of different things that we can do to appropriately address all of these issues. Number one, we follow the World Health Organization and CDC guidelines for maintaining an appropriate, healthy environment. So we're cleaning more often. We are maintaining uh, social distancing guidelines when in the clinic. We're uh, making sure that uh, patients are screened appropriately for their travel history, their contact history, their symptomology. We're taking temperatures of patients when they come into the clinic and their, and their family members, as well as our staff members. So we're doing all that on the inside. We're also uh, making sure that we take full advantage of telehealth options. Um, they won't change the way we administer care because you can't do an injection uh, or a procedure over a telehealth uh, modality, but you can do a lot of screening. You can keep patients out of the mix. You can thin down 
um, your patient flows so that you are uh, providing a safer environment for everyone. Uh, when patients check in, we're asking them to go back down to their car and we'll call them up when we're ready immediately for them rather than having them mill around and sit around other patients. So there are a lot of uh, strategies that we can employ to make sure that we're meeting all of the expectations of creating a safe environment for everyone involved. Um, now on top of that though, we have to pay attention to the perception. And that means taking the regular temperature um, psychologically of our staff members as well as our patients. Do they still want to see us? Do our, does our staff still want to come in? Um, and it's, that's a tough question to ask too because you're putting someone in a very tricky position. Um, do you want to come in and accept a certain level of risk that is hard to determine and, and quantify? Or do you want to stay home and take what could be a more certain economic risk depending mm -hmm. on you know, all the various resources that are available for staff members? And I, I totally sympathize with how challenging um, a question that is to answer. And I stand by and support any of our team members that fall on either side of that in terms of how they decide to, to uh, act. Right. So you're, you're defaulting to uh, the employee. If, wherever you feel safest, if you want to come in and, and, and you feel good with that, you can earn some money. Great. We need you. If you don't feel safe, fine, you're, you're still employed, we're, don't hold it against you, stay home and take care of yourself first. That, you're taking that approach as a leader, to, 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 and that's the message that you're sending out. Correct. And then we're also listening to our, our patients. You know, mm. they're, 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 that, that whole psycholo psychology and approach to all of this information that they're hearing and listening to and being exposed to, the rapidly evolving environment that they're exposed to is influencing their decision-making. So one week we saw our volumes drop by 50%, and then the next week it dropped by 50% more. And that were, they were telling us loud and clear a pretty strong message. So we made a decision not to have our clinics open this week, for instance. We're planning to return to a reduced schedule next week, and we're actively reaching out to the patients that we have scheduled for next week, as well as our team members. Um, but if either one of those pools of people that we speak to uh, tells us that they're not interested in coming in, then we're going to have to extend that blackout period until we get to the point where we feel like we're rounding the bend and coming back on that curve. Right. So it's a very fluid environment where you have to make decisions uh, daily and weekly about, uh, about big decisions, whether to stay open, whether not to, whether uh, patients come in, whether employees come in. All of that's a very, very uh, dynamic situation, it sounds like. Very dynamic, very challenging to manage all those variables. Um, but a lot of those hard lessons that we learned over the last you know, five to seven years have prepared us for this. Um, we've gotten much more adept and sophisticated at um, negotiating um, relationships with uh, stakeholders and vendors and being able to uh, know what the implications of, of not receiving a certain amount of revenue are going to be in the uh, short, medium, and long term. We have applied for the assistance that's being offered through the CARES Act and the stimulus bill uh, with the 7A loans for the Small Business Administration. Uh, because um, I think without that, you know, we're going to probably start running into problems if we go through an extended period of time where we're not generating any revenue. Right. So it sounds like you've really, what the experiences that you've had in the past and how you've had to deal with those have really helped you uh, figuring out how to position you to be able to make those decisions uh, in this crisis that we're in right now. 
That's they great. definitely inform our decision making in a big way. And I, I would say, had we not gone through those experiences, we would definitely be floundering um, right now. And I, I, I feel like there's no room for error in this type of an environment. You know, a, a, a small misstep could mean a very, very huge consequence. Yeah, very well said. Well, Sean, um, with that, if anyone listening wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way to reach out to you? Uh, I think email is probably the, the, the most straightforward way. My name, Sean, S-E-A-N, at our company's name, flexogenics.com. Great. Thanks, Sean. And thanks so much for your time today. And uh, best of luck getting through this uh, the situation that we're in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Right. Thanks, Tom. Hey, thanks for listening to My Company Story. We have new episodes coming out every week, so please subscribe if you like this. And if you'd like to hear previous episodes, you can go to mycompanystory.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you or someone you know would be interested in coming on the show, please email me at don at Thanks for listening.